Waffles. They're good. That one never made it to uh, television. I wonder why. Y'all remember Ego Waffles? You remember the slogan, right? Lego my ego. Now, what is the, uh, what's the purpose behind that slogan? Supposedly, Ego Waffles were so good that you had to work and be ready to snatch them before anybody else could get your Ego, right? In reality, were they that good? No, they're kind of like cardboard. But, but the slogan said, Lego my ego. And, and uh, we still remember them even though they weren't that good. We had to fight for the right to participate in that delectable breakfast pastry, right? Well, <laughs> the message was don't share, they're too good to share. Well, what if, what if Legos had the same slogan? Each got a Lego today when you came in. What if, what if it was Lego, my Lego? What if that was the slogan? My question to you is, what could you do if you just had one Lego piece? Not much. What if you put two Legos together? How special would that be? Oh, we're into it, I can tell. This is going to be a long sermon. Now, it would be better, but it still wouldn't be too much to look at, Right? What if, uh, what you need to do is you need to figure out the purpose for which your Lego was created. And y'all are like, duh, you stick them together. You play with Legos, right? Well, that's true. They were made to connect with other Legos, and you can do incredible things with Legos if you connect them. But what if you developed Lego envy? What if you decided that the Lego you hold in your hand is so special and you didn't want anybody else to experience your Lego. And come hell or high water, you are not sharing your Lego with anybody. How effective would your Lego be? Would your Lego ever experience the purpose for which it was created? No. Y'all are like, get on with it. What if you decided that um, you were going to ignore your Lego or throw your Lego over in the corner? How stupid would that be? Really stupid. Now, the Lego you hold in your hand, it costs you nothing. It didn't cost the church very much, but it cost you nothing. It was a gift. And what you do with that Lego is your choice. You can choose to share it with someone, and, and it can be part of a Lego masterpiece. Or you can hold on to it, hide it, throw it away, and forget about it. But if you do, you will never experience the joy of participating in something bigger than just your single Lego. You will never know the possibilities of your Lego. It is only in letting go of your Lego that you'll experience something magnificent. Now, I want you to check out. I've got some pictures of some Lego stuff today. Let's run through these. My, my monitor isn't working. Go ahead and do the first one, Danielle. That is the largest Lego airplane. Well over nine feet long. It's all, everything's Legos that you see there. And, and it took like two years of professional Lego builders. I didn't know they existed. Professional Lego builders to put this thing together. Next one. The Mona Lisa. Can you say that dude has way too much time on his hands? That's impressive, but wow. Okay, next one. Now, the tires are real tires. Everything else you see is a Lego Volvo. Pretty impressive, huh? Cheaper. Well, I guess. Now, this is what I really want to get to. This is a Lego church. Let me give you some facts about this Lego church. Uh, 75,000 pieces. You can go ahead and scroll the next one, Danielle. 75,000 pieces. It's about 7 feet by 5 and a half feet. 
1,372 Lego people can attend this church. There's a pipe organ. You see the pipe organ back there? There are 3,976 windows in this one. You can just stick on that one there, Danielle. It features an elaborate pipe organ, a balcony, stairs to the balcony, a narthex. What's a narthex? We don't even have one here. Anyway, restrooms, coat rooms, several mosaics, a baptistry, an altar, a crucifix, and a pulpit. Now, this thing took two years just to plan. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Well, if you've got two years to build a Lego church. Who knew that one little Lego could be so magnificent if it were in the hands of either the inventor or an artist who had the vision to see what the possibilities were? Now, according to the Bible, every person has a Lego. You didn't know that, did you? But in the Bible, it's called something different. This is on your listening guide. In the Bible, it says that every person, every believer has a spiritual gift. Now, you have natural talents and abilities that were given to you at the time of your birth, at the time of, of your conception. The genetic combination of your parents gave you certain abilities or built-in features and maybe lack of abilities. Blame your parents for that one. But if you're, yeah, thanks, Mom. If you're in God's family, then you have at least one spiritual gift given to you at the time of your rebirth. Remember, if you ever read John chapter 3, um, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and he says, uh, how, can, how can I have eternal life? And he says, you must be born again. He said, can I enter my mother's womb a second time? And he said, no, 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 I'm not talking a physical rebirth, a spiritual rebirth. So at the time of your spiritual rebirth, the Bible says you are given at least one spiritual gift. You're given a Lego. When you ask God to be the forgiver of your sin and the leader of your life, not only were you adopted into God's family, but the Bible tells us that God's Holy Spirit comes to take up residence in your body, in your life. And, and as a housewarming gift, the Holy Spirit brings you at least one spiritual gift specifically chosen for you by your Heavenly Father. But your spiritual gift is not for you. Your spiritual gifts were given to you by God for other people. And they do not function properly if you hide them, hold them, hoard them. They only function properly, and the church is only built up properly when you use that gift in the body of Christ. So just like an isolated Lego could never make any significant impact in Legoland, and they have Legoland, neither can an unused spiritual gift make any impact in this life or in the next. Now, our Lego masterpiece, those pieces that you hold, is supposed to look like this. Y'all see that? That's pretty sweet. They didn't have this trash when I was a kid. Now, here's what our Lego masterpiece looks like in reality, without your pieces. Now, I, I just I, I told Caleb, I said, hey, dude, just start putting stuff together. Now, he put it together better than I would have because he's, he's really proficient at this stuff. But what I did was I took the number of pieces that are in the box, and I took out of that box the number of pieces that corresponds to the amount of people who usually serve in an average church. 20% of the people generally do 80% of the work in any church. So this is 20% of our Lego masterpiece, and I'm afraid that this is what most churches look like, or worse, because not enough people are using the gift that God gave them. Which would you rather have, this one or this one? The box. Actually, you have three choices of what you can do. They didn't have that when I was a kid. But the reason it doesn't happen, the reason many churches look like this or worse, because a lot of believers act like spoiled brats, so many families. They think 
the church is for them and about them. Say that again. They think the church is for them and about them. Nothing could be further for the truth. The church is not for you if you're a believer. The church is you. The church isn't this building. We got our sign put up out there. Woohoo! But the sign represents where the body of Christ meets. If we someday move out of this building, that doesn't mean new life has ceased to exist. New life is wherever people meet together. New life meets at my house on Sunday nights in small groups. New life meets at Wes's house. New life meets at the McQuistian's house in small groups. Wherever the body of Christ gathers together, that's where new life is. We're grateful for the building. We've been praising God for a year for this building. We praise God for our sign. Yay! But that's not the church. Church is you. And the church is for the unchurched. The church exists for people that don't even come here. It's the only organization in the world that exists for, for people who don't show up. And a lot of spoiled Christians say, no, the church is for me. No, it's not. Or they say, the church is about me. Wrong again. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is about glorifying God. And when we get all of that jacked up, not only do we not attract people to God, the God we say we serve, but we actually put up a stumbling block that keep people from coming to what they need the most. That's a relationship with the living God. We cannot and will not allow that to happen. So what do we do about it? Well, we've got to Lego our Lego. Why don't you all say that? I know you're just itching to do that. We've got to, to accept God's call. He's the one that's in charge. He's the one that designed the church. And we've got to be involved in building something bigger than ourselves. So this is the phrase that we use. And, and most of you haven't heard this. Some of you have. Um, it's been a couple of years since I used this phrase. Apply your heart and your hands to the place of greatest demand. Apply your heart and your hands to the place of greatest demand. See, someone who is going to be a strategic server, someone who is going to... Lego, their Lego, asks, where is the critical need in this church? Not random needs, not pet peeves, or not, not pet projects. Where is the critical need? And I'm going to show you in a minute why that's so important. God has a unique thumbprint for any church. In case you haven't noticed, this is not your grandfather's church. It's certainly not your dad's, Definitely not my dad's. You know, two weeks ago, he's sitting back there in the crying baby's room because all that racket that was going on out here. I said, Dad, why do you not like my church? He said, I like the church. I don't like the racket. I'm like, okay, Dad, you just don't get it. This is not my dad's church, but this is also not the church that you last attended. We have made some strategic choices about the type of church that we're going to be, and we are never going to be the church that offers the most activities. That's not even in our plans. We don't give a rip about how many activities people have going on. We would rather do two or three things well than do 15 things half-cocked. We do not want to be mediocre. And I think a lot of churches get caught up in mediocre. We're not going to do, if we look just like the church down the road, one of us is not necessary. So we've made a strategic decision that we're going to do Sunday mornings. We're going to put most of our attention on Sunday morning, most of our... Cash goes into Sunday morning type stuff. We're going to do small groups in homes because we believe that you cannot do church by yourself and grow the way God wants you to grow. You look at the life of Jesus. Jesus had a small group. He lived with them for three years. We're not going to go that far. We'd kill each other. But we're going to come together because you cannot... And, and a lot of people will use this excuse. Well, my relationship with God is private. Look at Jesus Christ. He lived his life out loud 
publicly. And when you're going to grow spiritually is when you take what is private and you get together with a group of people that you can trust, bring it out in the public. When you do that, amazing things happen. I can't tell you all the stuff that's happened in my small group through the years. People have talked about struggling with anger and alcohol and the struggling with divorce. And when they open up and others around them come around them and pray for them, amazing things happen. And it's just like the Bible says. If you confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, then you're healed. you want to know why most people aren't healed that go to churches? They have never shared with another human being their deepest, darkest secrets. And see, we put on these masks and we pretend we got it all together when we go to church. That's not what church was designed for. Church was designed that you come before a holy God who knows everything about you anyway. You find some other people that are pursuing God like you're pursuing God. You open up your life to them. God builds you together, knits your hearts together. Then you're healed as you share the truth of who you are and quit playing games. That's church. And that's what I've given my life to build. I'm not interested in this other crap. I'm not interested in politics in the church. I'm not interested in which deacon has the most money. We don't even have deacons. I was talking to a member of my family last night. He said, I don't, I don't like church anymore because I was a deacon and I saw all the politics. Crushed him. But I was used by some guys that had a lot of money to try to get at the pastor. And he said, I didn't know it until, until they pulled it over on me. I'll go, but I'm never again going to fellowship. That makes me want to kick somebody's rear. That is not the church that Jesus Christ gave his blood for. Everything we do for a purpose, and, and here it is, real simple. This is what our church is about. We want to reach people who are far from God, help them connect with God and other people. So everything we do, if it, if it accomplishes that purpose, woohoo, we do it. If there's some point where a ministry quits doing that, we will either revise it or reject it. Because when a horse is dead, probably get off. I've been in churches. We were talking about the churches we've been in and the dead horse ministries that people are still trying to ride. And they look stupid doing it. Like, is that thing still working? <laughs> of course it is. We just need to put a flower on it. It's dead. Stinks. You ever been into a ministry that stinks? And I, I'm not talking physically, but spiritually. You walk in, you go, dang, something missing here. And I think it's Jesus. Holy Spirit's left a lot of ministries and people don't know. That's the saddest thing in the world. But I got to Lego my Lego. And, and really, here it is. I got to Lego my ego. Because what people want to do is they want to control stuff. I got a good friend in ministry, one of my best friends. And people are trying to control him. And it is sucking the spiritual life out of him. There's all kinds of fights in the church. It just makes me want to throw up. We got to have people who understand that the local church is the hope of the world. And, and what they're going to say is, wherever the critical need is, that's where I'll lead and that's where I'll serve and I'll pray that God will open up an opportunity for me to serve in another place that maybe fits my spiritual gifts better, but I'm not going to sit on my rear and do nothing. One thing I won't do is do nothing because what we're doing matters too much. I have a dream of this place being filled with hundreds of strategic servers. People who say, I love this place, and I want people to know about this place, and I'll do whatever it takes to make this place better. I'll apply my heart and my hands to the place of greatest demand, but I will not sit on my butt and do nothing while people are going to hell. Fired up. And, and the other thing strategic servers do is they don't sit around and say, oh, well, I, I'm not gifted in that area. 
Because look, look at Ecclesiastes 11.4. If you wait for perfect conditions, you will never let go of your Lego. You'll never get anything done. Now, in the, in, in the Bible, there's this book called Acts. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, the fifth book of the New Testament. And uh, it's the story of what happened after Jesus left the earth. You remember there were 12 apostles. Now, the apostles were the people who were specifically chosen by Jesus Christ. He walked out and said, you follow me, you follow me, you follow me. Those, are guys, those guys are called apostles. He chose 12 of them. They lived with him for three years, and then they also all saw him rise from the dead, except Judas. Judas went off and did his own thing. He died. Um, he didn't get to, to hang out with Jesus after he came back. So in order to be an apostle, you had to have been chosen by Jesus, been taught by Jesus, and seen Jesus alive. So there were 12 of those dudes. And uh, Jesus was crucified, he comes back to life, and he appears to all these different people over a period of 40 days. Sometimes it's just a group, one group of the apostles, sometimes it's bigger groups. At the end, if you look in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, it says that, that at one point, the resurrected Jesus Christ appeared to 500 people at the same time. This was not group hallucination. That was impossible for 500 people to have the same hallucination. So Jesus appears to 500 people, and then at some point he gives them some final instructions, and then he leaves. He goes back to heaven. And uh, these, these apostles are sitting around, they're going, what's next? And the book of Acts tells us what's next. Tells us about these guys and what they did. And you've got to understand that there was no organization for the local church at that time. All they knew to tell the hundreds of people who were coming and following Jesus was, here's what Jesus did. We saw it for three years. Here's what Jesus said. They didn't even have the New Testament then. It wasn't written down when they started the church after Jesus left. The thrust of their message was, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, we saw a dead man up walking and we'll never be the same. That was the thrust of their whole message. Acts is about the beginning of the church and then we get to chapter 6 of Acts and we have the first church problem. Y'all can't believe that, can you? Church was a baby organization and they had a problem. Now here's, here's where churches get in trouble. This problem was a minor problem. But had they not addressed it, it could have grown into a big problem. You ever seen that happen? You do not advance the kingdom of God by sweeping issues under the rug and ignoring them. They will stink, and they will eventually come out. So let's look at, at what they did. Um, and, and let me explain a couple of things first. If your Bible says disciples in Acts chapter 6, it's not referring to the 12 guys I just described to you. Those are apostles. The disciples it's talking about are the hundreds and hundreds of people who have come to follow Jesus Christ. And the vast majority of them were, were uh, Jewish people. They were folks who were friends and relatives of the ones who saw the dead man walking. They heard them talk about the dead man walking and they said, we want to follow Jesus Christ. All right, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. As the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. Describes <laughs> most churches, I know. Those who spoke Greek complained against those who spoke Hebrew. Okay, let me stop. The believers grew rapidly. We're told in the book of Acts that after one sermon, 3,000 people joined this movement. And, and that's a pretty good day for any organization, especially a brand new church. And a side note, this movement was not called Christianity yet. That comes years later. What they were called was the way. If you remember John, uh, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except me. So, so Jesus Christ, the founder of this religion, says, I'm the only way. And so what people would say then is, are you a follower of the way? It wasn't Christianity until later. That was a derogatory term that, the, that some of the Jews gave to followers of Christ. They were calling them little Christ. But right now they were called the way. Are you a follower of the way? Now, there were Greek-speaking Jews and Hebrew-speaking Jews. 
The Hebrew-speaking folks lived in Israel and specifically in Jerusalem. The Greek-speaking Jews lived all over the known world, and they worked in Greek uh, cultures. They spoke Greek, and, uh, and so they were more Greek than they were Jew. It would be like an, American, an, an English-speaking Jew living in America compared to a Hebrew-speaking Jew living in Jerusalem, in Israel. All right? So it's going to be quite the difference because of the culture in which they live. Now, what happens is when the Passover would come, Passover was a national Jewish feast, and it goes all the way back to the time of Big Mo. You remember when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt? They had the Passover, and they would celebrate this every year. So the big celebration was everybody would come to Jerusalem. If you were a Jew, that was your your duty, was to go to Jerusalem, celebrate the Passover. The incredible thing, though, is that Jesus Christ, when he was sacrificed, the moment he died is the exact moment that the priest in the temple inside Jerusalem was sacrificing the lamb, the Passover lamb, at the exact moment. God's a God of details. Jesus Christ is hanging outside. He's a condemned criminal for something he didn't do. He dies at the time that the Passover lamb was slain. And so you got all of these people here celebrating the Passover, and then they hear about Jesus. And all these Greek people get caught up in the fervor of the way. I need to know more about the way. I want to follow the way. I want to become a part of the way. And so they stay in Jerusalem so they can learn as much about the way as they can. And, you know, it's that whole type of deal that my mother-in-law saw him and, and my mother-in-law never lies, so I believe in him because my mother-in-law, you know, that type of deal. That's what was going on. Now, <laughs> some of you are going, mother-in-laws never lie. Now, you have these two groups, Hebrew-speaking Jews and Greek-speaking Jews, living together, sharing meals together, sharing their money, doing life together. Thousands of them were co-mingling together, and then this problem arises. Back to verse 1. As the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. Those who spoke Greek complained against those who spoke Hebrew, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Apparently, as they all lived together, they would congregate, and the widows who couldn't take care of themselves, because in this society, if you're a woman and and you had no um, male relatives, you had no rights whatsoever. You couldn't get a job. You couldn't provide for yourself. And so these widows were getting together, and the people would distribute food to them. So the out-of-town widows were being overlooked. And so some of the Greeks are coming up and they're going, Hey, dudes, we love your sermons. Your sermons are great. But you're discriminating against our widows. And, and, and not only that, your widows are getting preferential treatment over our widows. And so you got these guys with no written instructions. They, they go, What do we do? Verse 2. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. We apostles should spend our time preaching and teaching the Word of God, not administering a food program. They said, and now, looking, now look around among yourselves, brothers, and select seven men who are well-respected and full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will put them in charge of the business. Then we can spend our time in prayer and preaching and teaching the Word. The leader said, we know there's a le- legitimate problem. We don't want to ignore that problem, but we're not the ones to do it. They didn't say, we need some volunteers and we're not leaving the room till we get them. Let's see some hands. No, that's what a committee on committees does. We don't have committees around here. We have ministries. We empower people to do what God has called them to do. So we're not, they said, we're not going to do that. No, they said, go pick the finest men you know, the ones who are full of wisdom, faith, and the Holy Spirit, and set them to the task. These were the very first deacons in the church. And unfortunately, that is not what I think of when I think of deacons. I know some godly deacons, but but, but they are the exception to the rule, not the rule. They said, find the most Christ-like men you can, and then get them to serve the tables. They said, we can't stop doing what we've been called to do. We'll be off mission. Our Legos were designed to go in this spot. Someone else's Legos are designed to go in that spot. 
We need more hands and more hearts, more Legos fulfilling the mission that, that they were created for. And together we can stay on mission and reach some more people who are far from God if everybody will do what they can. Everybody must Lego their Lego. Verse 5. This idea pleased the whole group, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, uh, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, a Gentile convert to the Jewish faith who had now become a Christian. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. The very first deacon mentioned is Stephen. He later becomes a very famous man in the Bible. He began his service in the kingdom of God as a waiter. The idea... The Bible tells us that this idea of picking Greek-speaking dudes to take care of the Greek-speaking widows pleased everybody. And, and you, if you're a logical thinker, you would think the next phrase then would say, and so the widows were fed. Not what the Bible says. Verse 7. And so the word of God spread, continued to spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem grew larger and larger, and a great number of priests accepted the faith. The word of God... God spread because some godly men served those. They, they waited on tables and, and the word of God spread. What does feeding widows have to do with the word of God? As there was a critical need in the very first church, a group of individuals said, I'll meet that need. And when they met the critical need, the blessings of God poured out on that church the word of God spread. The number of disciples grew rapidly. So when someone met a critical need, it advanced the mission of the whole church. When this very specific need was met, it was like pouring gas on the flames of this movement called the way. It became like a wildfire. Meeting this critical need actually spread, uh, sped up the spread of the way of the church. And then, don't miss this, the last phrase there. And a great number, can you put that back up there, Danielle? And a great number of priests accepted the faith. Priests? The ones behind the crucifixion of Jesus? The arch enemies of the way? Many of them left their jobs to follow the way? This was huge in this society. And it all started with a group of folks saying, I'll meet that need. I'll do what you ask me to do. Whether I think I'm gifted in that area or not, I'll do it because I believe in the mission that, that you're telling us about about and it goes all the way back to the beginning of the church. We can experience explosive growth at New Life, but it won't be because of a sermon. You ask folks what they remember about the first time they come to church, nobody ever remembers a sermon. I'm okay with that. You know what they remember? Got some friends. You ask them what they remember? They say, when I came in, you accepted me. People acted like they were glad I was there, and I've never had that in a church before. There are parents here today that have said the reason we came to your church is because you had something for our children at the same time as church. They said, we've wrestled our kids. We don't want to kill our kids at church. Ann and Ann were some of those. Mark and Holly told me that. It just makes sense that we would have a place for children to go and, and we would drive. We don't do babysitting. People who are strategic servers recognize we don't do babysitting around here. 
Back there in children's church, we are driving down a stake, an anchor in a kid's heart from which they will never recover because we're going to tell them about the love of Christ, that He has a design and a purpose and a plan for their lives. They are not accidents, regardless of whether their parents were married or not. There's no such thing as an illegitimate child. There's illegitimate relationships, but not illegitimate children. And we want them to hear about the love of Christ so that no matter what their background, how much money they have, education, lack of money, no matter what, God designed them for a purpose. And when they fit inside of God's purpose, it fills them with meaning in life. There's a reason to get up in the morning. And so they're never going to recover from that. Why will my wife give three Sundays a month? Because she would much rather be in here. She gives three Sundays every month back there because people matter to God. Little people matter to God. Why, why did we even start this church when we didn't have anything? We didn't know what we were doing. We made so many mistakes. I could write a book on how not to start a church. I could write a book on how not to build a church or remodel a church. I got lots of how not to's. We did this because we think all people matter to God. We don't care what your skin color is. We don't care whether you uh, work or don't work. Or, or We don't care. We believe you matter to God. We believe there needs to be some place in Palestine that proclaims it no matter what anybody else says. People matter to God. Why do I drag my children up here at 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning? Ask little Jamie whether he gets over here earlier on a Sunday he's preaching or a Sunday I'm preaching. Which one is it? Uh, yeah. He, he told me after he preached the first time, he goes, man, there's a lot that goes into that. I don't go to sleep on Saturday nights like this and say, oh, dear God, please show me something. It doesn't work by osmosis. I mean, I know we study that way in college. I've seen guys do that trash. You've got to study and prepare. And in fact, when he preaches, I, I have him give me his transcript before he ever comes up and preach. Is that because I don't trust him? No, it's because I want him to do the absolute best he can do. And when you force someone to put their thoughts down on paper, it gets a lot better. Because <laughs> there's times I'll read through my sermon, I'll go, that's a bunch of trash. I'll go back and I'll, I spend hours trying to figure out what God wants me to tell you. I believe you are worth it. Believes that people are worth it. We need greeters. We need everybody to realize there is no insignificant job. How important were the parking lot people last Sunday? How many of you here were last Sunday? What was the parking lot like last Sunday? Rows and rows of gravel. And, you know, that, that just stuff happens. And I get a text last Sunday morning. I'm actually going to church last Sunday morning. I get a text. We've got gravel all over the parking lot. We don't have a place to park. I didn't even respond. Like, I knew that before we left. I mean, there was stuff, they were scheduled to be here on two or three different days. They didn't show up, and, and so stuff happens. And my thought was, something about it. So I found out after the fact that Ryan gets here early, and they figured it out. Little Jamie, he, was, he calls Ryan at midnight or 12.30 last Saturday night. Is there any way we can get somebody out of here to move that stuff so we can... Because he was panicking, and, and Ryan said, dude... We got it covered. You worry about preaching. We'll take care of the little stuff. So they had guys out there parking. And here's what I think ought to happen every Sunday. I think that was a God thing. Because what they said was anybody had an SUV or a big truck, you parked way out there. Anybody who was uh, a worker, you parked way back here. And then anybody who was more seasoned in life or who had children got to, sit, got to park up front. I think that ought to happen every Sunday. Because what does that communicate to, to a guest? When they come up and they get to park on the front row, somebody's out there to help them with children to get in and show them. What does that say to someone? You matter to God. 
You will never ever see pastor's parking place, pastor's wife parking place. That's garbage. We're going to park at the back. And, and when we have to park down the highway, we'll be the farthest ones. Not because we think we're great, but I think you matter. And I would much rather trudge through mud whatever so that somebody who, who hates church, who might give us a chance, could come up here and get the best parking place and the best seat. See, we, we used to say this all the time. I hadn't said it enough. You need to park on the back row and sit on the front row because guests are going to come in. They're going to be very timid. And we want them to have the best parking place and the best seats. They shouldn't have to wander up here after church starts. All right? So you get a free pass because I hadn't said that in a while. But starting next week, park on the back row, sit on the front row. Act like you like church. Get here on time. Hearts and hands engage to the place of greatest demand. The local church is God's plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. The church is it. The only it's God's only plan to reach people who are far from Him. They're failing. And the degree to which we take the mission of reaching people who are far from God seriously, God can be successful through us. That's how we become the body of Christ. Thing ain't going to go far. Designed for wheels. It's got a hot rod under that hood. The reason we aren't more successful than we are is because only 20% of you are doing anything. Time that changes. We have the most important job in the world. Not going to fall asleep at the wheel. The mission begins in the parking lot. We need greeters. We need hospitality folks. We always have people that, that um, get tired. Of, every time we've done breakfast, after about six months, it becomes the same two people doing breakfast. I don't cook breakfast. I eat Pop-Tarts every day. So I'm not a breakfast person. I mean, I'm not the cooker. I'll eat it if you fix it, but I'm not going to fix it. We need folks at the door. We need people who will say the kingdom of God matters more than gossip. can't let this opportunity pass us by. So my question to you is, will you let go of your Lego? Let go of your ego, and will you serve where there's a critical need? Take your registration cards, if you would. Fill those out so that we would have a, a record of, of your visit. And, and I try to keep the, the emails updated, but... Sometimes I don't save it when I put it in there. That's happened to Kimberly McQuistian like for six months. Got an email yesterday, please change my email. And I went in there and it was, instead of Kimber Mac, it was Ember Mac. I, I left the K off, so it was my bad. So put your email address on there. We'll, we'll send you emails when we, when we send things out. Here's what I want you to think about. If you have a prayer concern, put that on the back. But, but here's, here's my challenge to you today. If you will let go of your life, let go of your Lego, and, and be used by God wherever He chooses. Because see, as the head of the church, He gets to choose. If you're willing to let go, then just write that on the back of your card. I will let go. And, and let me just tell you this. You're going to serve. We need you to serve under folks that are in ministries. You may have a better idea. But don't go busting in there your first time and tell everybody how stupid they are and that you're God's gift to children's ministry and that... You know how to do it better than them. We've got people back there that have been working in children's ministry 20 or 30 years. Some of the best I've ever seen. Careful. Go back and serve, and then if you have ideas, sure, God speaks through all of us. But you say, I'll apply my heart, my hands to the place of greatest demand. I will let go, and I'll serve. Wherever you need me, I'll serve.